How are you doing? <laughs> Good. You feeling okay? Is, I, I'm always uh, unsure if the 2 p.m. slot is worse or the 3.30 p.m. slot is worse. But either way, we're going to power through today, all right? You got your coffee, your water. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for the sacred privilege of what we do every week um, as we gather the people of God and rehearse the mighty acts of God. And Lord, we pray that you would guide us today, Lord, as we, as we explore some of these ideas related to that. Lord, would your spirit uh, be the one that speaks them to our hearts, Lord, and uh, give us soft hearts. Lord, give us, as Brady said this morning, Lord, eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe and understand. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, how many of you in here are senior pastors? All right. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Totally kidding. Jerk works every time. All right. How many of you are worship leaders? All right, good. Good. Worship team members? Very good. Who am I missing? Technical directors, anybody? Or tech, yeah, tech team? How many of you kind of, yes, both and, like sort of do a couple of, you know, your, your Slash, your Bo Jackson, you know, or... Um, you enjoy, and how many of you, yeah, you're just, you're, you're part of the church, you love worship, you're part of it, okay. So, so we're going to have to just, right from the outset here, clarify what we mean, because there's a big discussion about, okay, worship, now, you know, someone will say, well, worship is, you know, everything we do, and all of this stuff, so most certainly, yes, but it is possible to expand a term to be so large that it begins to lose any of its meaning, and it is true that worship in the biblical sense is interchangeable with the idea of being obedient. And, and you have even like Obadiah's name, the obedient one or the worshiper. In, those are interchangeable concepts. So yes, in an ultimate sense, worship in its broadest meaning is our whole lives being lived out in obedience in such a way that glorifies God. Yeah, that's true. However, the word worship has also been used narrowly and appropriately to talk about congregational worship, what we do when we gather together, when the people of God gather together. And that's not just the way it's been used in the American church. And I hate when I, people sort of say that sometimes, like, we well, you know, worship for us is just what we do on Sundays. Well, what do you think Psalm 95 is about when he says, come and let us worship the Lord our God together? That's talking about a congregational gathering. It's talking about the people of God gathering together. So one of the, one of the unforeseen consequences of expanding the use of the word worship to mean everything that we do before God is we've lost the value of what the congregation does when the congregation gathers to worship. And so now you have people who say, well, I don't need to come to church to worship. I can worship with my iPod on, hiking the mountains. That's a Colorado problem. Uh, you know, and, and I, can, I can podcast my latest sermon, listen to my favorite band, and I've, I've worshiped, right? No, listen, there's, a, there's an aspect of worship that, 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 biblically speaking, is what the people of God do when the people of God gather together. So we're not losing that. Is it more than that? Certainly, but it is not less than that. Okay? So we got to get that clear right from the outset. Otherwise, a title like this becomes confusing. The next thing we want to kind of ask is, what is happening in corporate worship, in congregational worship? When the people of God gather together, what's taking place? What's going on? For the, for the I, I'm not sure when, where to situate this historically or where this switch sort of happened, but probably most of us would give an answer that has something to do with expression. You'd say, well, when the people of God gather together, what we're doing is we're expressing 
something to God. We're expressing our hearts to God. We're expressing our praise to God. We're expressing our, you know, and all of those things. And that is true. That is a part of going on, what, what is going on. And you might see it as an upward movement. The congreg- congregational mu- uh, worship is an upward movement. The people of God expressing their praise, their gratitude. Most certainly that is a part of congregational worship. But you know, there's something else. It is also formation. There is also a downward movement where God, by his spirit, is forming us as we kneel and as we stand and as we sing and as we recite words and as we hear words and as we see uh, 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 visuals and as we all, all of these things are happening, as we're doing them, we are being formed. So there's something very powerful about that because it's easy to just focus on worship as an expressive practice. But it's not just an expressive practice, it's a formative practice. Let me try to unpack just a little bit more about that. Um, In the previous session on songwriting, um, we talked about, I asked people, how many of you have gone through catechism? So let's ask it again here in case it's a... Anyone been through some sort of catechism before you got confirmed? You know, you went through liturgical background, okay. A lot of us did not. A lot of us did not. We didn't go through traditional... I, I did not. I was christened as a baby in the Anglican church in Malaysia, uh, and then my parents switched from an Anglican church to uh, a a non-denominational Pentecostal church, and have been part of that stream of the body of Christ since then. You know, that was, gosh, 29 years ago, 20, no, maybe 28 years ago, 27, doing math on the fly, not my strong suit, 27 years ago, let's go with that. So that's been a long time. And what I've realized is when you get into kind of this, the free church thing or the non-denominational church or evangelical, whatever different sort of umbrella or category of that, what you begin to see is that there's not enough emphasis placed on worship as being formative. And so sometimes someone will say, hey, I I didn't like, I don't like this song or I don't like what we did this morning. And we'll say to them, chill out. It's just an expression. It's just poetry. How do I know that this is our response? Because this has been my response. Six years ago, seven years ago, so I got an email from a guy who was one of the, you know, sort of poster families in our church, you know, led small groups, led mission trips, all of this stuff. And then his faith totally fell apart, and he kind of held us responsible for giving him a faith that was flimsy enough to fall apart. And whether that was fair or not, I don't know, but we can own some of that blame. I will say that there is a kind of faith that is worth losing. I will say there is a kind of rigid faith that is not sturdy enough to last when the winds blow. So some of that's okay. Uh, Some of that's important because it helps us as church leaders recognize that, wow, we didn't prepare you for any. Our catechesis was pretty lousy. (laughs) And so when the time of testing came, it it, it didn't work. But he emailed me, this was six or seven years ago, and, and he said, I went to New Life Sunday morning, heard the name of Jesus once, heard the Trinity referenced zero times, incarnation referenced zero times. Most of the prayers and songs were addressed to a generic U with a capital Y, but that could have just been as easily been sung about Simba, the Lion King, as they could have been about Jesus, the Messiah. 
My response was not to laugh. <laughs> I was mad. I was offended. I was, how could you? How dare you? And I, I wrote back this long, eloquent email about poetry and the freedom of poetic expression and how we're just using words. But what lens was I working through? Was I seeing worship as formation or expression? All upward. All upward. So I, all my defense was based on seeing worship as an upward movement. And then I began to realize that actually the church historically has not talked about worship solely as an upward movement. I began to learn this old phrase in Latin that goes like this, lex orandi, lex credendi. And what it means is the rule of prayer is the rule of faith. Now, rule, if you know this kind of in the, in the old sense of rule, not rule as in um, rules, like that, but rule as in the order, the thing that orders it. So the order or the way, maybe to say it in our vernacular, the way we pray becomes the way we believe. Now it's interesting because post-enlightenment, and this is maybe a, a little historical hypothesis that you can test to those of you that like researching, but I think post-enlightenment in the Western world, we began to privilege the cognitive sides of human beings. In other words, we began to say, you know what? Knowledge and understanding trumps practice and behavior or trumps emotions and feelings that really information is, is king. Or you've heard people say in our marketing world, content is king. But content isn't really king. Presentation also matters. How you invite people into the participation of it really matters, that actually content does not really stand alone, that content, and you can read social scientists that will now validate this, that content actually doesn't stand on its own as if you can encounter a piece of information in some sort of a vacuum. That's not true. Let me bring this down to earth. How many of you are married? What if on your anniversary you found a post-it note and you wrote, I love you, smiley face, stuck it on the bathroom mirror, and that was your anniversary card. How would that go? Not so good. So wh whatever, man. Content. It's all about the content. Form doesn't matter. Why, why does form matter, Glenn? Content matters. Try telling your wife that the form of flowers in the restaurant you choose, try telling her that the, that the form doesn't matter, that the content is just the same, that I, I, well, I love you. So what did I set it on a Post-it note? See, we, we don't actually believe that form and content are divided. We don't actually believe that. We've been told to believe that by post-enlightenment philosophy. But the truth is we don't really believe that. We know that the whole thing comes together. And it's the same, you know, how do you like to drink Coca-Cola? In a can, in a glass bottle, in a glass with ice? I mean, when is it not Coca-Cola, you know? Uh, well, it's always Coca-Cola, but it's just different when it's in a styrofoam cup, you know? doesn't feel as refreshing. It'll kill you either way. But, but form matters immensely. And the lie of the Enlightenment world was that as long as you can transfer data or information or knowledge, that the forms, the way we do it, doesn't really matter. Now, thankfully, we understand a lot more about the human person. We understand that you're not just going to remember words I said today. You're going to remember how you felt today. You're going to remember the, the, the trees and the sunshine. You're going to remember Pike's Peak. You're going to remember how the room was just a little bit stuffy. You're going to remember all of these things because 
It's all part of how we learn. You can think about studies of, of a room where people are sitting at tables versus standing up, where people are facing one another, having a conversation versus facing forward and listening to some guy drone on and on about how forms matter. <laughs> You're going to remember these things because it's all part of it. And the church understood it. Why do you think they built such amazing cathedrals? Why do you think they built the, the stuff with beauty all around them to draw their eyes up? Why do you think they had portions of the liturgy that said, now we kneel, now we stand, now we sit, now we say this, now we taste this, now we drink this. Now, why, why, why? Because they know that how we catch something is not just about the data, it's about the whole thing. Lex Arandi, Lex Credendi says to us that the way that we worship and pray, and I mean it now in the whole congregational service, not just in the 20 minutes, not just in the 30 minutes of music, but the whole service, the whole 60 minutes, the whole hour and a half, however, the whole thing teaches us something about God. The question is what, right? The question is what? It's like C.S. Lewis said, the question is not whether or not you have a theology. The question is whether it's a good theology or a bad one right? It's a similar thing. It's, the question is not whether our worship services are teaching people about God. They most assuredly are. But what are they teaching people about God? So, oh boy. Okay, what do we do? So worship is not only an expressive practice. Worship is a formative practice. Yep. I'm going to give you three things this afternoon. I'm going to show you a video, and then we're going to do a couple of questions. If I could reduce it down, and I hinted at this in the last session, if I could reduce it down and say, well, what, are you, what are you really saying? Oh, how should our services be then? Well, what, what might we learn from the historic liturgies? I would say, first of all, it's that everything is intentionally Christ-centered. Now, when I say Christ-centered, I want to tell you that I mean completely. A few years ago, my wife and I visited an Eastern Orthodox church in town. Uh, how many of you have ever had the privilege of attending an Eastern Orthodox service, okay, Vespers or, or the, the Divine Liturgy, right? By the way, the liturgy that they use on Sunday morning, the Divine Liturgy, was written by John Chrysostom, guess when? Fourth century, roughly. And they've been working with that ever since. Like, wow. So much for creativity, right? Well, not necessarily, because different great composers have set that liturgy to different music. You can find... Uh, online, you can, set you can find different choral arrangements of this. It's really remarkable. So it's kind of what we were saying earlier where if you make one thing complex, you can make the other things simple. So anyway, so we went and we walked in and it's just, you know, kind of a, there's this entryway thing and I'm forgetting all the, term the terminology at the moment, still jet lagging, I'll blame it on that. And then you walk into the actual sanctuary and there's not a chair in the room. There are rugs, though, on the floor. So you stand, and you rehearse some things, and eventually you sit. And eventually you kind of lift your eyes up a little bit, and you notice that all along the sides of the room are these beautiful paintings. And what they are paintings of are icons or saints. Now, as evangelicals, we might cringe at the idea of saints, but I think saints are a lot more trustworthy than our version of it, which is celebrity pastors. Just saying. Everybody needs someone to look up to. Saints are the church's way of saying, we've vetted these people and we think you should. Try. Also, they're dead. So we've now seen their whole life. 
versus our thing of like, let's put them on the cover of the magazine because they got a really big church. They may be good, but they may not be. And they're not dead yet. So we don't know. Anyway, so you look along the walls of the room. <laughs> Sorry. And you see these icons, and it immediately catches your eye. And you notice that toward the end of it, there's a blank spot. Because the priest will tell you that this is where we continue the story. That this is the story we've picked up. This is the story we've inherited, and that this is now the place where we come in. And then you see the altar. Beyond it, in the inner room, is this place where the gospel is kept. And then you, they bring, the priest brings out the gospel. And, and I walked away from it thinking, you know, that was a really warm and hospitable group of people. They welcomed us. They were really kind. But nothing about the service was catered for Glenn the consumer. It wasn't. It was designed to make me think of Jesus. So there's this whole priest image. There's Anyway, I could go into detail about it. But I realized that everything spoke. The visuals and the verbals all spoke. Everything worked together. It all told a story. You know, sometimes there's been this debate with, with tech and media um, people, and, and, and they're kind of being, doing what they're told to do sometimes, but there's been this question of like, well, is it okay to put the worship leader's face on the big jumbotron or on the big screen? I mean, it may not be a jumbotron, but even in a room this size, you could put, you know, someone's face on, on the screen. What do we think about that? Is that good? Is that bad? Look, None of what I'm saying is, are examples of things that are sinful or, or morally wrong. It's just asking us to think more deeply about it, to think more reflectively about it. So every once in a while, when a big conference is happening, you'll hear people say, this is worship services going, so-and-so's leading worship. It's so awesome, totally felt God, amazing. And they'll say things like, it was Jesus, it was, Je it was all about Jesus. Oh, my gosh, it was all about Jesus. And they really mean it. And I believe, I trust them. But then they'll post a picture of it on Instagram or Facebook or something. And almost every time, almost every time, the picture is of someone's face on a big screen and a huge crowd with lights aimed up at this band and this person's face on the screen. And I've been that person on the screen. Please hear me when I, am, when I say this. I am challenging the very tradition that I'm part of. But if sons and daughters of the house don't challenge the way the house is going, then who will? You're not going to listen to it if a Catholic priest comes up here and tells you, that looks kind of funny. But I'm asking you with all sincerity to listen reflectively to this as coming from someone who has grown up in this quote-unquote tradition. And so I just wonder, I don't doubt the sincerity of the worship leader who says it's all about Jesus while his face is on the big screen. I don't doubt the sincerity of it. I just question how effective it is. That's all. In other words, that's good, but is there something better? Is there a way that we can underscore this point that it is about Jesus? Is there a way that the visuals and the verbals could match up? Is there a way that the visuals and verbals could work together to point to Jesus as the center? Because if not, then, then we're compensating for it all the time, right? We're like, 
How many times, I can't tell you how many times I've heard a band say, I know there's all these lights, and I know there's this stage, and I know there's this screen, but it's not about me. Then why are you there? Well, I'm there to lead. Good, lead. But how can we put them in a position to not have what people see contradict what they hear? Let the two things work together. Let it tell the same story. That's all. All right. Now I'm in trouble. Let the verbals and the visuals tell the same story. Whoops. Oh, come on, keynote. There was one more point. There it is. Let everything said and sung and seen and done point to Christ. I will say that there's something about this even with the sermon. That sermons don't end with, all right, everybody, go and do better. But sermons end with us saying, I am so grateful for the Redeemer that we have in Christ Jesus. I'm so thankful for and And not just in a, I mean, some, some people, I don't know how tuned in you are to sort of the gospel movement, gospel sort of stuff. But some of that stuff goes a little too far when basically every sermon goes like this. This is what God says to do, but you can't. But thank God for Jesus. Go home. That's it's a bit far. Because really what it should be is, this is what God calls us to do, but we can't. But thank God for Jesus who made us, who brought us into the family, and now we have the Spirit who empowers us to be changed so we can go and live likewise. That's the full gospel-shaped narrative, okay, which ties into this. The, the historic liturgies were all gospel-shaped. Not just Christ-centered, but gospel-shaped. The liturgists, the men and women who wrote this stuff, and I'm thinking of Cranmer, uh, with the Anglican liturgy. I'm a bit partial to Anglican liturgy. I, I find it very beautiful. I think of, there are a lot of beautiful liturgies out there, but I, I, the one that I find just really beautiful and elegant is, uh, the, is, is the one Cranmer sort of sourced and put together for, for the Church of England. But these, these, these guys were theologians. They really were. They, were, they weren't, and this is not a dig on, on any of our vocations, but they were not primarily production managers. Do you know what I mean? Like, they weren't producing a service with, um, with production aesthetics in mind. They were trying to invite people into a story. They were trying to invite people into a story. And that's why when you look at it, it's not a variety show, but it's a narrative. I think the, a lot of our churches have a magazine format, you know, so, well, we don't we gotta keep people moving. So we'll do 20 minutes of this, and then five minutes of this, and then 10 minutes of that, and then the video, and then this. And it's basically a variety show that we sort of strung together to keep. Now, that's not bad. Again, am I saying this is sinful? No. Am I saying it's morally wrong and these people are going to hell? No. I'm just asking, can we do it better? Can we tell a better story? Can we, instead of letting production values shape our decisions, can we let the gospel narrative shape our decisions. So what's an example of that? I think the biggest example of it to me, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this more in a minute, is um, introducing something like confession. And I say that because any of you here like a good book or a good movie or, you know, you, you like a good story, however you get it, right? What is the essential element of a good story? What, is, what does a good story have to have Conflict, tension, every good story has to have it, even the sort of light, fluffy, romantic comedies, which I enjoy. 
and you've got mail. There's a conflict. There's a tension there of like, how is she going to, what's going to happen when she finds out that he's the big jerk that's putting her store out of business? Classic. Love that movie. Every good story needs conflict. What's the conflict in the gospel narrative? What's the conflict in the gospel narrative? Sin. Creation, heaven. Creation, new creation. Creation, Jesus. No, creation, fall. Redemption as it has begun through Israel, culminating in Jesus. New creation. But the conflict in the story is fall. So in our worship services, is there room to show the brokenness of the fall? I've had people really challenge me to say, Glenn, how can you acknowledge that people are going through a lot of pain because we live in a broken world? How, how, can, our, how can our songs, is there any moment in the service for people who are grieving because they just lost a loved one? Is there any space to acknowledge the great tension, the great conflict in our story that men and women have sinned and the earth is struggling against the chains. Romans 8, all creation groaning. Where's the space in the service for that? How do we reflect that musically? How do we reflect that with words? How does the sermon reflect that? If every sermon, again, is a motivational talk, then it doesn't reflect that. Then it sort of assumes that you can do everything I'm telling you to do if you just feel inspired enough. You too can have every day be a Sunday. But I don't feel like that. And tomorrow's Monday. No, literally. I said earlier, you know, the beauty of the wisdom literature, how Proverbs says, Live, do these things and life will work out this way. Ecclesiastes says, we did and it didn't. Job says, God, what are you going to do about it? There's so much tension built into the scriptures. I love it. You can't read one book of the Bible with the same lens as the other because the Bible, in a sense, is in conversation with itself until things come to this beautiful, climactic moment when Jesus shows up. But even then, the story is not over. So there is tension in this now, but not yet, in that God has come, and yet he will come again. And we're in the in-between here, where we're caught between the, we can now glimpse the future, but we don't, we're not there. Not everybody is healed and well, and tragedy is still, where is this conflict in our services? Where is the gospel shown? Essential peace of every good story is forgotten peace. Yeah, there we go. Got it. Okay. Finally, the third thing here. Say, well, Glenn, I, I mean, uh, give me the template. Like, what should we all do? Like, I'm convinced. So what is a service like? How, how should I do my services now? The truth is, the Holy Spirit is the one that leads us. It has to be. It has to be. The miracle of the day of Pentecost was not that people had an ecstatic experience with God. And I'm a Pentecostal, whatever that means. I'm a charismatic. The miracle of Pentecost was not that people had euphoria and felt so close to God. The miracle of Pentecost is that people who didn't speak other people's languages were all of a sudden able to proclaim the gospel in someone else's tongue. That's the miracle of Pentecost. What does the Spirit do? 
Jesus says the Spirit will guide you into all truth. It's the Spirit who reveals Jesus. Paul prays, I pray that the Spirit would help you to grasp these things, to see these things. Who is it that helps us know what it means to be Christ-centered and gospel-shaped in your service in Pittsburgh versus my service in Colorado Springs versus your service in Fort Collins? Who is it that tells us? Who gives us that roadmap? It's the Spirit. So that there's no easy shortcut here. The answer is not, and this is where people, I think, get me wrong. You know, sometimes people catch wind that Glenn is, is kind of changing a little bit, and he's not just that modern worship guy anymore, and, oh, yeah, I think Glenn just wants us all to go liturgical. You know, I mean, he's probably going to wear a collar someday and wants us to kind of, you know, I don't know, do all these fancy stuff. Can I just say, <laughs> and I, I know this because I hear rumblings of it. So are you saying we should all blah, 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 blah? no. I don't think we should all go liturgical. And a, a more offensive question is when someone says, so did you do these things because that's what millennials are into? <laughs> I loathe that kind of approach to church. Oh, I'm not doing this to be savvy demographically doing this because I think this is how the Spirit is guiding me. And I don't imagine that it's exactly the same. It's going to be the exact same way of how He guides you. I don't think that. But don't you think that the Spirit wants to guide us all to be Christ-centered and gospel-shaped in the absolute best way that we can be, with all the tools that we have or don't have, to make the visuals and the verbals and the actions and the words all go together. Couldn't, couldn't the Spirit be at work in that way? Yeah, He could. Are there little things we can do in small churches, big churches, school? I mean, we set up in a school every week. We, we don't have fancy tech. We don't have, we have one projector and all, basically what it does is put words on the screen. And I make my own sermon slides. So I'm not living in this cushy world of like, yeah, well, I just, you know, I told my production team what I wanted, and they made the school turn into, you know, the Westminster Abbey, you know. No, I, I'm in your world. But I think there are little subtle things we can do that reflect the Holy Spirit at work. I also think it's worth reflecting on the difference between a cultural language and a cultural liturgy. This is going to take some chewing on, and you're going to be thinking about this hopefully for months and years to come. If you're up for some hard reading, how's that for a cell? You, you could read James K.A. Smith has a book called Desiring the Kingdom. I've written a number of blogs trying to summarize and synopsize it for people like me um, because it's a bit dense. But Smith does this big work to show what a cultural liturgy is. And let me take a stab at it. Any sports fans in the room? Yep. Like going to live sports. I'm a huge Broncos fan. I'm trying to get a date on the calendar with a friend of mine to go up to a game. I mean, it's something we do. But there is a whole cultural liturgy with attending a live sporting event. It begins when I'm preparing my heart. And I open my closet and I see that obnoxiously orange hoodie that says Broncos football on it. I think, oh, yeah, I'm putting that one on. And I grab my blue cap with the vintage horse Bronco logo on it. No, nope, I'm wearing that one. You know it. Every, my, my mind and my heart is being prepared. 
We take the drive. We go through the same rhythms. We park in the same dumb spot because it's free, and we found a way, and then we walk through these dodgy neighborhoods, you know, to get to the stadium, and, 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 we, and, we, and we arrive in, and it's the same thing. You, you'll see, you know, street vendors. You'll see someone hawking tickets. You'll see, and then we walk, in, and we see we are the procession of the assembly. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to Sports Authority Field. Oh, baby, I'm anticipating. You know, and we start walking. We're processing in. I mean, this is Psalm 24, baby, but this is a totally different version of it. Who shall ascend? And I start going up the parkway into the stadium and ascend up into the seats and come down and you hear the national anthem, you take your hat off. You see, there's a whole ritual to it. And everybody knows this liturgy. We know when to stand. Stand on defense, sit on offense. Mostly because Peyton Manning is saying, shh, hurry, hurry, hurry. Omaha, Omaha. So we know. And you can always spot the person who's new to this liturgy. They're standing at all the wrong times. Like, Dude, sit down, I can't see. Oh, sorry, so sorry, so sorry. Where is this liturgical handbook for this? And everything is, is, is designed to aim your heart towards loving your team, right? Smith says a cultural liturgy is everything that is designed to aim your heart's affections toward one particular thing. Shopping malls are another example of a cultural liturgy that Smith gives. You walk into this great cathedral, high ceilings, huge banners, marked with different colors of its seasons, usually with percentage signs that say 50% off. And there are different little chapels within this cathedral that you can worship in. And you search through the holy artifacts, looking for the one that will make you look like the patron saint of the gap in the window. You're like, dude, how do I make my life like his life? It's skinny jeans. Okay, and then you go and you find the right thing. And then you go to the altar where you bring your offering. And they give to you this great gift. And you hold it. You say, I've got it. Colored jeans. It's in. And you are on your way to becoming like the thing you desired when you saw the picture. It's a liturgy. It's a liturgy that's designed to aim your heart at a particular vision of the good life. Unmistakably. And actually, shopping malls get this better than churches do. We just think people just use their brains. We're just brains on legs. That's all we are. No, you're, you're not. Okay, you get it. So Smith does this work to say what a cultural liturgy is. A cultural language is something simpler than that. A rock concert for example, is probably, which, which, which is a rock concert, cultural liturgy or cultural language? Could be both, but let's try to split it a little bit. Let's say rock music is a cultural language, and the rock concert is a cultural liturgy. Do you see where I'm going with this? Okay, so we borrow a cultural language when we use rock music in church. No problem. I, my hypothesis, test it if you want, is that it's a, you can you don't have to be as critical when you're adopting a cultural language. I want to use folk music. I want to use rock music. I want to use, great, use it. But you have to be pretty critical when you're using a cultural liturgy. 
what if we make the whole service like that Coldplay show I went to last week at Red Rocks? Now you got to be careful. Because the rock concert is designed to aim your heart toward whom? The band, the star. That's brilliant. The rock concert is designed to aim your heart toward the rock star. So we think we're adopting a cultural language because we use rock music. That's great. But we've also un uh, unconscious, subconsciously borrowed the whole liturgy of the rock concert with all of the trappings. And then we wonder why we have rock star worship leaders. Because the liturgy is designed, that, the music, the liturgy of the rock concert is designed to aim your heart toward the star. The same way that that whole Broncos game, th right? you, you follow this? That's what it's built to do. The historic liturgies were built to make you see Jesus, to make you participate in the gospel. The trick with this whole thing of being spirit-led is Pentecost was about us learning the cultural, uh, or speaking the gospel in people's languages. I think 30, 40, 50, however many years later, we've wholesale adopted cultural liturgies and thought all we've done was change the style of music. We've done more than that. And, and we can now see the results of it. So why, you know, Brady and I always talk about this, like, why do we have people who are consumers? You know, people often say, and, and we talk about how, well, if you wouldn't treat them like customers, you wouldn't train them to be consumers. But you've designed a cultural liturgy that's designed to train, treat people like customers. What's the end result going to be? You bet it's going to be consumers. Of course it is. And this is what I mean when I say the Eastern Orthodox Church did not have me in mind as a customer. Nobody said, I'm so sorry we don't have chairs. We hope the rug is comfortable, though. Nobody said that. I just sort of picked up that this is what we do to kind of go low. Uh, you know, I'm not saying you have to move, remove the chairs. We have chairs in our church. Okay? I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's a very different frame of reference. So let the Spirit lead you, but let the Spirit guide you in using uh, 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 language, not liturgy. Okay, so how do you make sure you don't fall in the pitfall of doing one but not the other, okay? This is what you do. Become a student of the historic liturgies. I'm telling you, it's a tragedy, but most worship leaders under 30 have no clue what the church did pre-contemporary praise and worship songs. No clue. But they can tell you every performance at the Grammys or the VMAs, which is a tragedy in other ways. Everybody knows the cultural liturgy. Nobody knows the church's historic liturgies. Even if you don't repeat it, you should know it. Because the question is, which are you borrowing from? Are you borrowing more from the GMAs? No, that's the Gospel Music Awards. Well, okay, sorry. VMAs. There we go. Are you borrowing more from the Grammys? Or are you borrowing more from the Divine Liturgy by John Chrysostom? But we can't even begin to sort that out until we become a student. So when you become a student of it, ask. Ask what they did and why. So how am I supposed to access this? I don't have time to study. Actually, it's, a little, it's even more simple than that. Because reading it in a book, as I said, is not the answer. Because we're not cognitive beings primarily. Or only, I should say. Only. Go visit a service. Take a Sunday off and go and... Go and attend uh, at an Anglican church, attend morning prayer at a, at a Catholic church. You can't, probably, they won't let you take communion, but attend a mass or something. Yeah. Do, 
attend a, a, national, a traditional Ash Wednesday or Good Friday service. Do something like that. And then introduce yourself to the priest. They'll be delighted. Oh, you came to visit? Ask them if they would be up for coffee later in the week and ask them to explain to you why they do what they do. I, can't, I promise you they probably haven't had a question like that in years. And they'd be delighted to answer it for you. Oh, well, here's the reason. And you'll discover that there's so much that's been thought through before you even decide what you're going to take from this. Don't even forget that question. Well, what am I? Just seek first to understand, right? Just go, why, why do you do that? Well, why, why, why? Tell me about this. I mean, I'm still learning. I'm learning that when you kneel at the altar to receive the Eucharist, that you don't take from the plate because the whole idea is with God, there is no need to take. He's such a generous giver. That's beautiful. That all you need to do is come to God with open hands. He freely gives. Oh, my gosh, that's so cool. That's why you do that? I thought it was just it's not logistics. Actually, it would be logistically more sanitary if everyone just grabbed their own little wafer, right? But there's something in this, I am not doing this. It is being given to me. Ask them, what, why are you doing this? Then ask what we've changed and why. Oh, this, here's where the fun begins. I mean, this could be a group project for your worship teams. Be like, hey, three or four of us, let's go. Set up a coffee with the priests. Then you go back and you're like, okay, let's talk about this. What don't we do? Oh, yeah, we do, we've changed that. Oh, yeah, we totally changed that. And is it good? Are they, do we have reasons for changing it? Is it good? Is it bad? Brady tells a story of a pastor who said, we, used to, we thought about doing communion every week, but it was a logistical nightmare, so we decided not to. But apparently it's not a logistical nightmare to take an offering every week. <laughs> you make it work, Right? Now, I'm not saying you, it's more godly to do it every week. There are a lot, plenty of churches that do it 36 times a year. Or whatever. You, you let the Spirit guide you in this. But all I'm saying is be reflective about your decisions. Know what you've changed and why. Why, why do we do it this way? Is, it, is that a good reason or a, or a poor reason? Okay. Man, I'm not holding back from you. I hope that's okay. All right. Um, some of you may want to know what could this look like. Okay, what's one possible way? And again... New Life Downtown is not the way. It's just the way that I am working this out with our team by the Spirit. Does that make sense? Okay. So because it helps to kind of hear it, this is what a sta our stage looks like. There's a cross in the middle of the stage with the communion table. What does that visual communicate right away? Christ is the center. This is the center. The table is the center. The screen, you can't see it here because the high school was doing a play, uh, The Man from La Mancha. But it was, also, it was also in Lent leading up to Easter, which worked perfectly because that little cave from the Man from La Mancha looked strikingly like the cave, the, the tomb, the empty tomb. So anyway, uh, <laughs> but our worship team stands on either side. And normally there is a little screen behind the cross for the lyrics. And every once in a while people complain. They're like, I can't see the lyrics because I'm always looking through the cross. And I look at him and I go, Exactly. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. And then they get it, you know. Now, now listen, if I could choose, I would put the words in a, in a different spot. But this is what we have to work with. But I had my, my duality of choice was either put the cross in the middle and have the, the words be a little bit obscured or don't put the cross in the middle. And I thought, I'm not bending on that one. We'll change other things. So 
that's kind of the layout. Order of service looks like this. There's an opening song. Uh, and then we do a prayers of the people moment. I'm, I'm going to call these elements in the service their liturgical names, prayers of the people. Sounds so formal. It's very, it's very charismatic. I mean, it's very like you'd be, it's very, it's very evangelical, very non-denominational. You know, this is what we do. We have, we'll have a different prayer focus. So Evan, this last week, our associate pastor, you, you were running the service and you prayed over first responders for the floods and all that this week. Is that correct? Sort of-ish. And you had Ben Woody come up or no? You were going to, you did. You had a retired firefighter come up and pray. Yes? No? I'm making this up? Okay. You said you were going to do that, but maybe things changed because you couldn't find the right person. So got it. Okay. But it was a great idea. We'll, we'll do things like that. You know, say someone's bring up so-and-so, say, hey, this is Susie. She's a school teacher. Let's pray for all the school teachers in the room today. That's prayers of the people. Um, and now in the liturgies, that's a long moment. For us, it's five minutes, but it works. And then we have uh, the passing of the peace, which again, I never say that, but I say... Greet one another. But, but there's a way that we decided to make people more intentional, help people be more intentional about greeting one another. And someone suggested this, it's not original, is to put a countdown clock on the screen. So we put a countdown clock of four minutes so people kind of know how long they have. And you'll be surprised, if not for the clock, the default would have been 40 seconds. Hey, hi. <laughs> so nobody really wants to do this. If you give them four minutes, you're like, okay, so I really got to actually go talk to someone, you know. Maybe one person for all the time, or maybe two people, or you know, and you find your you find your way of breaking it up. Then we have joy time, which is the offering. We also do announcements, which is not liturgical, but hey. Um, and then we do scripture readings. This is kind of cool because, like Brady was saying, we do the sermon. We work together on what the sermon is going to be each week, right? And so then I'll go find an Old Testament text, a New Testament text, and a gospel text that are either. They are the sermon's text, or they supplement the sermon's text, okay? And then Brooke, who's here, she finds readers from the congregation to be prepared, and they'll, they'll come and read it. So what's the plus of that? It gets other people in front of the congregation. So this isn't the staff and the people. This is not all of it. You stand up and read the Word of God. And we, do, we have the whole congregation stand when we do the gospel reading. Again, that's a way of communicating to people that, we, we read our Bibles through the gospel as the central lens. So we stand up to honor the words of Jesus because everything else of Scripture is interpreted through Jesus. That's, how do we teach people that? Well, have them stand when they read the gospel. Oh, oh that's why. Yeah, I know. Some, some, some of my teams in the back are like, oh, that's why we do it. Then we have a sermon. It's about 30 minutes, unless I'm long-winded that day, which has not been happening as often. Then we go into confession. There's a quiet confession. Then there's a prayer confession that we pray communion where everyone comes forward, receives, and then the worship team leads us in like 20, 25 minutes of worship. Come up at the end, I come up at the end, lead them through the doxology, pray a prayer of commission, sending them into the world like Alan was saying this morning. You business people, you, all of you, we send you back into the world. Not, hey, that's cool, everybody. Well, okay, let's do this again, you know, but rather than go in the grace of God, you know, go now. So, anyway, there's that. Cool? No? Yes? Good? All right, you want to watch something real quick? Um, anybody got, let's just do two questions. Any questions real quick? I know we don't have a mic around, so just shout it out and I'll repeat the question. But anybody? Something? Yep. 
Yeah, what's the reason for having worship at the end? Um, you know, it, that's very, it, it changes. Like probably during Advent, we'll change it and put worship at the beginning. Uh, part of it is we started it during Lent as a way of saying, hey, let's shake up the service order because Lent is about being disoriented a little bit and then being reoriented around God. So we started it then, and then we realized that it really kind of worked. Like we liked that. And in our setting, for our people, again, deeply contextualized, is it felt that after hearing the word and responding at the table, it was people were ready to now sing. And that, that the other way around, it was a bit more work for our worship team. They were like, you know, now I'm the warm-up act, you know, preaching for them. So. Okay, one more question. No? Good? Okay. Uh, a video of me talking. Let's skip that part. Forgiveness of God to one. Announcing the... Like a priest singing to each other about God's okay, forgiveness. Okay, so this is... Um, uh, and then there'll be a moment where they'll come and receive... Yep. So this is a video of us reenacting something. Um, this is not our church. This is an old church in town that we got permission to film in. And um, the idea is this confession song. This is a song of confession that I wrote um, earlier this year. And the idea is the people are facing one another and they're singing. Each one will sing a verse confession. So one side will sing one verse, the next side will sing the next verse, and then they sing the chorus over each other as a kind of absolution. So just kind of watch this. What we have done, what we have left
On the night that he was handed over to suffering and death, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. And when he had given thanks to you, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. And after supper he took the cup of wine, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this for the remembrance of me. And therefore we proclaim together the mystery of our faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again.
genuine move of the Spirit in many ways, you know? When people, when we left a lot of these historic liturgies and began to write our own songs and all that, it was a beautiful thing. And it communicated to people that we could know God, that God was near, that God was close. And I don't want to undo that. Please hear me in this. I don't want to lose that or say that, you know, that's not valuable. It is. All I'm saying is I think we can hold a couple things together. Do you know what I mean? To, to say maybe we've gone a bit far. Let's, let's enrich the way we're doing it. Let's have spirit and scripture and sacrament and singing. Let's have it all work together to point to Jesus and tell the gospel story. Amen? That's the goal. And I hope you hear my heart in that. I, I, I know I've said some things that are tough on some people, but I view myself as the chief of this, not chief of sinners because this isn't a sin, but I see myself as being implicated with this. You know what I'm saying? And so if I'm speaking strongly, it's because I'm speaking to our own, to, to my own, to my own people. And um, you're always s- stronger, I think, with, with, your, with your family. And that's, that's what I'm trying to do. If I was talking to a group of um, traditional liturgists, I would defend the contemporary praise and worship movement. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? But you're you, and we're here, and I'm me, and so this is the angle I've taken. Hey, there's um, a book that I've written on this that, that is, there's a deal on it. This, um, boy, did you just see my password? No, okay, amazing. That was so close. I unlocked the iPad. Um, <laughs> that's funny. But it looks like this. See if that'll come on. There it is. And the bookstore has it over here. If you, if you have to have a paper copy, that's okay. But I just want to tell you, through the month of September, it's two ninety nine as a digital copy. It's 80 pages long. You can read it in an hour. I mean, it's, it's pretty short, but it walks you through a lot of these changes for me, and it walks you through it perhaps in a more careful way than I did this afternoon. And it's two ninety nine Amazon or, or iBooks or whatever. Um, uh, I will say, if you go on iBooks, be careful because there's... There's a Discover the Mystery of Faith, The Experience, which is not the actual book. It's like a teaser, uh, and that's probably free. So you'll be like, it's free on iBooks. And you're like, no, that's not actually the book. So um, the actual book has text <laughs> and words in it. Um, so 80 pages worth. So there's that. It's two, I just want to make, you know, again, if you're going to buy it at the bookstore, it'll cost you more because it's paperback. But our bookstore here is still the cheapest place to buy it on paperback. The only place other than the bookstore here and my basement where the paperback copies exist 
uh, is from Amazon's print factory, but they sell it at 12 bucks because it's a print-on-demand kind of thing. Some of you know what that means. So, so it's, it's much more expensive to do it paperback from Amazon. If you're going to do paperback, do it here. If you're going to do ebook, do it anywhere online before September's over. The cool thing about what we saw on the video is that's what we're all going to experience together on Thursday morning at our closing session. Uh, I have the privilege of leading us through confession and commu- a sung confession. We're going to split the room in half. We're going to sing confession to one another, and, and we're going to go through communion. We're going to pray with one. We're going to do all of that for our closing hour on Thursday morning. So I look forward to that. Uh, those songs are on a, on, on a new release that I had with Integrity Music this year, also called The Mystery of Faith, if you're interested in them. But again, save you money. They're all free on YouTube. So there's that. Um, God bless you. Thanks for hanging this afternoon.